Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 261. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy and co-founder of Lend at Fintech. Today's episode is sponsored by Lendit Fintech Latam. The region's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking is going virtual. It's happening online on December 8th and 9th. Pandemic or not, Latam is still the hottest region for fintech in the world. And Lendit Fintech Latam features all the leading players in the region. So join the Latam fintech community online this year where you will meet the people who matter, learn from the experts and get business done. Lendit Fintech, lending and banking connected. Sign up today at lindit.com slash LATAM. Today on the show, we are going south of the border. Uh, we are heading to Mexico City, where I'm delighted to welcome David Poritz. He is the co-CEO and co-founder of Credit Justo. Credit Justo is a small business lending platform, been around for about five years. And David actually spoke at our, at our Latin American event in Miami in December. It's where I met him for the first time. And wanted to get him on the show because you know, Mexico is, is becoming, I would almost argue, a hotbed of fintech. There's a lot of interest you know, worldwide, a lot of capital flowing into, into Mexico. And Credit Justo is, is focused on the small business lending space, secured small business lending, which is really, he talked about a capital desert in Mexico before he launched, uh, he launched his product. And we talk about how, you know, why that is and, and talked about some of, the, some of the interesting things the Mexican government has done to really help help sort of stimulate uh, activity in fintech. We talk about uh, how he's built his company and what the kinds of investors he has, how the loan uh, the loan underwriting process works, what kind of data they're using. That was super interesting in and of itself. Uh, we, we talked about what Americans still get wrong about Mexico and, uh, and much more. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Okay, so even on that short little snippet there, we can tell that you are not a native Spanish speaker. In fact, uh, I gather you, you are an American and I know you went to, to Brown. But so maybe just give the listeners some background and sort of how you got interested in, uh, in Latin America and you know, when you moved down there and, uh, and just tell us a little bit of, the, of, of your background. Sure. Happy to do so. So as you alluded to, I'm originally from the Northeast. So I grew up in the United States, uh, New England. Uh, However, from a very, very young age, I've had an interest in Latin America. So I've been uh, drawn to Latin America and I spent a lot of time living there and I've traveled there since uh, I was 12, 13 years old. Uh, Initially, my, my mechanism, my way of getting to Latin America was not through financial technology or fintech. It was through an interest in actually energy policy and environmental uh, and corporate social responsibility. So uh, there was definitely a shift in my interest, which I can talk about, which led me to fintech and lending and specialty finance, but it happened later on after college. Right. Uh, but for about, you know, from about 12 or 13 years old until I was, uh, had graduated from Brown, uh, my passion and my interest was working to create better systems to improve uh, energy development and Latin America was a place that that is very important given that you have an overlap between indigenous communities, uh, very sensitive environments such as the Amazon and large mineral and oil and gas reserves. Mm-hmm. So that was my prior life. I founded and ran a nonprofit called 
Equitable Origin. And I did that for about 12 years uh, until I graduated from Brown in 2012, 2013. Okay. So then when, when did your interest in fintech you know, get sort of first, you know, when, when did it first start? So in, I graduated from Brown and at Brown is where I met the other co-founder of uh, Credit Justo, Alan. Uh, Alan was originally from Mexico. He grew up in Mexico City. And after graduating, Alan immediately returned to Mexico where he began working in private equity. And I spent two years at Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship in 2012 and 2013. And as you may remember, this was just at the, this was, this was right around the period of time when Lending Club and Prosper Mm -hmm. uh, and Funding Circle and On Deck and Cabbage. And there was this dramatic uptick in interest, both from equity and debt investors in alternative lending platforms that were using technology. However, they were mostly focused on Europe and the United States. And Alan was working and I was finishing my studies. I was completing a master's. And we said, wow, this is fascinating and interesting in so many ways. However, we also saw the challenges that were, that were likely going to emerge for a lot of these companies that were focused in the US and Europe. And we thought that a lot of those challenges perhaps could be avoided when going to emerging markets. And given that I had worked many years in Latin America and Alan grew up in Latin America, we felt that the region that we wanted to focus on, and this was back in say 2014, was Latin America. So, you know, to make a long story short, we spent about six months, you know, we started in the Southern Cone looking at Argentina and Brazil and Chile. We then looked at Peru and Colombia and we eventually made our way to Mexico. Out of that analysis, we really felt that the low hanging fruit to develop uh, and roll out of interesting fintech strategies was Mexico. It's the largest country in Spanish-speaking Latin America, yet it was the market that had been you know, far behind Brazil in terms of venture capital investment and ge- generally entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so then maybe you could take us back to when you started and you'd obviously decided on, on doing a, a small business lending operation. What was the small business lending environment like in Mexico um, when you started? It was the best description. It was is it'll be like a capital desert. It was, it was <laughs> okay. you know, there's, yeah. It's been absolutely remarkable to see the evolution of fintech and specifically small business or SME lending in Mexico. When we began, it was something that was just not of particular interest nor focus from traditional banks, entrepreneurs. It just was. It, it was not top of mind at all. Mexico is fascinating because microfinance was a, as a sector is very, very important in Mexico. So if you look back at the history of microfinance, really Latin America, but specifically Mexico and then in Asia and India was really where it grew out of. So you had a lot of interest for very, very, very small businesses and individuals or consumers. And then you had banks focusing on corporate tier lending, but almost everything in the middle between say um, a $500 Small bit, a five hundred dollar microfinance loan to a five or ten million dollar corporate loan. Every the, the space between that was completely open, and that's why we felt that that was really the market opportunity where there was the most need. And when we began, really no one focused on it, or really very few people going after the opportunity. So, if you were an entrepreneur in Mexico and you wanted to get, say, a loan for working capital or to buy buy a piece of equipment. What what could you do? It was family and friends primarily was is kind of I think what you know if you were to you know from our early surveys people would if they if they had the 
if they had the, the network of kin to be able to, you know, uh, get financing, that's where they would initially go. Uh, they would use perhaps personal or family credit cards. Obviously, those wouldn't take you up to likely $250,000. If they were lucky, they might be able to get some supplier financing, but it was very unreliable. Right. Uh, so I would say the word I would use is it had a high level of informality associated with how people would go about that, right. uh, you know, go, go about finding uh, and getting access to small business finance. Right, right. Okay. So then let's just talk about Credit Justo and, you know, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you guys do, how you got started and how your product offering has evolved over, over time. So ever since we kind of did that analysis of looking at Latin America and arriving at Mexico as the country that we thought was most interesting, the other half to that analysis was really understanding what the strategy would be, which was arguably the most important element. So we spent a good chunk of time, you know, we looked at leasing, we looked at factoring, we looked at secured lending models and unsecured lending models. We looked at credit cards, we looked at auto lending. We really looked at the whole gamut of potential products. And we felt that the strategy that we wanted to build that we've largely stuck to was we wanted to be really the first truly multi-product SME platform that would start with the core lending products, but over time begin to offer additional value-added services such that we could eventually become a one-stop financing solution for small businesses. So our first product that we launched in 2015 was a very traditional, an asset-backed or real estate-backed term loan. Then we launched a real estate-backed credit line, which was more of a working capital product. Then we launched our leasing product, which we launched in 2018, which is focused on SME-oriented leasing, specifically geared towards the manufacturing space. And we're right now in the process of uh, launching our partnership with Uber Eats. We're their exclusive partner for uh, Mexico. So there's 30,000 Mexican restaurants approximately. And we were the group that they decided that they wanted to work with. So we're we're launching a partnership with them. And then we're launching a credit card uh, at this at the latter half of this year towards Q4. So okay. we're on our journey towards really kind of having individual clients who could have three or four products with us uh, and really grow with us over time as we expand. Right, but it's all asset-backed lending, right? I mean, is there a? I imagine it's obviously a lot lower risk. But what? what why decide to do asset-backed lending? We so we started out with exclusively asset-backed products. Uh, the last. Two products, the Uber partnership and the credit card product, those will be our first unsecured products. So we are over time making our way to unsecured lending products. Uh, Our view was the Mexican environment is so, it's so, uh, it's so difficult to access liquidity that as a result of that, you have huge amounts of unencumbered collateral on the market. So real estate and equipment, the vast, vast majority of it is owned, it's completely unlevered. So we said, heck, this is a really unique opportunity to apply technology and automation to very offline or very high touch products that have very strong credit profiles. So we decided as an initial step to go after products that in our mind would be much more forgiving in the sense that, you know, all entrepreneurs make mistakes early on, particularly in the credit space. And we felt that focusing on asset backed or secured products, one, the market was enormous and it would enable us to offer larger loan sizes uh, at lower cost to these borrowers, but it also would enable us to prove out the model in a more, yeah, in a, in a better way. Uh, and now we've gotten to the point where we've done that and now we're comfortable really iterating and going unsecured. 
Okay, so let's just talk about how it works exactly. So if you're, if you're an entrepreneur and you go to your site and you want to take out a term loan, for example, do you, do you put up your personal house? Do you put up, is it for corporate, corporate property? So you might own the building that you operate in. How, how does it work exactly? Yeah, so, it's, so we offer quite a bit of flexibility. A lot of people would use their individual residence or the home of their family. They also may use their place of business. It could be a business asset, such as you know, if it's a dry cleaner or uh, a mechanic shop, they may own a location. And that, in our mind, would be a great asset that could be used and could be levered against to, uh, to, to seek financing. So to answer your question, it's a combination of business assets and personal assets. However, all of the use of funds or the use of the loan that they're receiving is all going towards uh, economic activity that are more basically business activity, uh, whether it be as a sole proprietor or as actually as, as a business. Right, right. It's, it's funny because like there's lots of other countries in the world, like where I'm from, Australia, the small business environment, every, you have to put up your house if you want to take out a yeah. small business loan. That's kind of how it's been in Australia for, for decades. Slowly changing with fintech, of course, but that's how it's typically been. So then let's talk about the loans themselves. Like what, what are the typical loan terms? Like how long, interest rates, that sort of thing. Yeah, so part of our initial view was if you're going to take collateral, if you're going to offer larger loan sizes, you need to offer flexibility to the borrowers. So a lot of SME lenders in the U.S. or even in Latin America are very short term. So they're, you know, anywhere from one to six months. Our average loan size is around three years. So we're not, for example, the length of, say, a mortgage in the United States. It's not, these aren't 20, 30-year products, but these are longer term than you traditionally see from, at least in our experience, from fintech lenders. So, uh, yeah, our products are anywhere from, you know, 12 months to say for around 48 months. And most of our lending is in kind of the two to three year range. Average loan sizes, as you mentioned, you know, they're in the, the hundred to $200,000 range. So they're, you know, we lend from $25,000 to $1.5 million, wow. but really where, where we play a lot and where we see a large portion of our portfolio is in that one to $200,000 range. Right. Uh, so they're, yeah, they're few, you know, average durations of a couple of years, average loan sizes, of uh, you know around one hundred to two hundred thousand uh, dollars, pricing ranges. So it's from high teens to mid twenties, depending on uh, you know depending on the profile of the borrower. As our cost of funding comes down, which it has dramatically, we're now able to offer significantly lower cost products, which means we're able to go after larger businesses who are a little bit more price sensitive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So then who, who are these businesses kind of like, what, what, what are the sort of industries you focus on or is it, is it completely broad? Maybe you give us some examples of some yeah. of the borrowers that come to you. Yeah. So it's very, uh, we like to say that we're sector agnostic. So we don't, you know, you know, you know, we do not limit ourselves to any one specific area. We traditionally stay away from certain sects. So rather than saying, you know, we only lend to these groups, it's rather there's a couple areas that we are, we shy away from. Uh, those would probably be the energy supply chain. So the oil and gas supply chains in Mexico, which are very susceptible to payment delays, given that a lot of it is, they have a lot of exposure to the government. And then we're also quite careful in construction, just given if you have amortizing loans and a construction project, given the cash flows of that, you know, may not jive particularly well with that structure of loan, of structure of financing. But other than that, where we have limited exposure to those two areas, we're very, you know, we have exposure. I 
It's basically every state. So we have geographic exposure virtually to every state in Mexico. And there are very, very few sectors that we do not touch. And that, and I think that's a difference between the United States. You have, I always find it fascinating. You have, you know, niche lenders in the United States are focused on, you know, only medical finance, you know, you know, or only, you know, um, power sport finance. And they have, you know, large portfolios financing, you know, boats and ATVs in Mexico, given the dynamics of the local market, most lenders go down the path of being more broad in their offering and willing to go after a broader segment of the market. Right, right. That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about underwriting. I'm curious about, obviously, you're underwriting on two things, I imagine. You're underwriting, underwriting on the property and you're underwriting on the business. Just t- tell us a little bit of that process and the kind of data that you're using there. So one of the reasons that we were very bullish and excited on Mexico as a country where we wanted to launch Credit Justo was, one, the market opportunity, which we've spoken about, the fact that it was, you know, Mexico has half of the credit penetration that Brazil does. You know, it was a recipient of, you know, so little venture financing. And as a result of that, there was very little competition. But the other reason was uh, in 2014, the Mexican government made a very bold move, which was, which was happened in a few other places in Latin America around the same time, where they digitized their entire tax and invoice code. So Mexico has a fully digital e-invoice and tax submission model. So when people think of emerging markets, at least what I often hear is, oh, the assumption is they probably have very, very poor data. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a great place to apply technology-driven underwriting models, et cetera, et cetera. Our experience has been really the opposite, where we were really very, very, very early innovators in collecting and understanding and analyzing individual tax data from our borrowers and being able to overlay that with bank account information and financial statements to develop really, really robust underwriting models that are, many people would say, even more comprehensive than what, what you'd see in the United States. So in the US, you have groups that, you know, that, you know, they maybe link up to QuickBooks, they pull QuickBooks data, but Mexico, because of the e-invoice and because of the e-tax data, what you can do is is quite interesting and quite powerful. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So then, so you're you, so you've got in some ways that's a richer data set than than you have than it's available in Western countries that haven't digitized their their taxes. Absolutely. I would make the argument that Mexico and there's a few other countries in Latin America, arguably have a bigger data set to do more robust underwriting than what you would even find in the United States. Right. Or right. Europe. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so I'm curious about when a small business owner comes to your site, and I'm on there right now, but it's all in. I mean, I've, I've got my Google Translate on, so I got some sort of sense of uh, of what you guys are doing. But you obviously, you know, you have a phone call, really a phone number front and center, as well as an email address. But I presume you're really you're trying to do this as in, in as much with as much technology as possible. So let me just take us through the application process that the, the borrowers go through and how, and how you're leveraging technology to make it a better experience for the borrower. Yeah, so as I, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, we went after products that are initially very, very high touch, very, very document heavy, and they're products that are very hard to automate. However, that's where we invest our technology resources. So we basically took a secured lending product, which traditionally takes about six four to six months to get approval from a bank, if you're even able to. Mm -hmm. And we took that down to about four to six days. And the way that we did that is through automating the application, 
process, you know, form fills, and really creating a whole backend system that enables us to link up credit and underwriting with the commercial and sales team. So, you know, through, you know, automating things that were traditionally more physical, through doing data polls via tax data and bank data and uh, financial statement data, we've been able to dramatically compress the period of time that it takes a borrower to get a loan. So a large portion of it is online, but we also have are very focused on customer representatives because interestingly, just culturally, what we've discovered is people who are you know, going out to financial services products, many of them really want to speak to a person, even if it's an online process. Mm-hmm. So we've really figured out how to find the balance between bridging the human contact with the online piece and giving the borrower the option they can do as much of it as they want online or as little of it, depending on what makes them comfortable. And we found that that results in the best customer experience and the, and, and the happiest borrowers. You know, we have, you know, individuals who are 55, 60 years old, they've been running their businesses for 30 years, you know, and, you know, they, you know, they've banked with Santander for decades, you know, they want to open a new restaurant and, you know, Santander says, you know, sorry, you know, they, they went in seeking a $250,000 loan and they got $25,000. It took them about five months. They come to us, uh, you know, they can get pre-approved immediately. And, you know, within a week, they have their financing for the remaining $225,000. Those borrowers, sometimes they want to do it all online, but a lot of times they want to speak with someone and have them be walked through the process. So we've really developed a hybrid that enables for both. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So, you know, I want to talk about the pandemic because I, I, obviously it's impacting Mexico and I mean, Latin America has been pretty hard hit in general, it seems like, but you know, how, like maybe tell us, tell us about how the pandemic's impacting you know, the Mexican business environment overall. And, and, you know, is, is there a, is there a PPP type equivalent a paycheck protection program equivalent in, in Mexico for small business? So the short answer is the, government support and intervention for small businesses has been very, very limited. So I would say without getting into too many details, there's not an analogy in Mexico to what you would want in the United States. Okay. So that's, that's the first thing I would mention, which is just, it's a reality. You know, I'll answer your question, but just, I wanted to highlight a couple of things. Mexico is a fascinating case study because businesses and the economy performed very well in 2008 and 2009 compared to many other much, much more uh, much larger economies. And part of that is because there's so little debt and there's so low, the, the, the credit penetration is so low in Mexico and most businesses are so under levered or not levered at all mm-hmm. that they do, they're not stuck in situations where they have large debt obligations, which they're not able to service because you know they go into a zero revenue environment. So I think the first thing is Mexico generally has done fairly well in periods of economic instability, partially because businesses have had to become very resourceful and they've had very limited exposure. So I think that's an interesting kind of occurrence that we, if you look back to the financial crisis of 08, 09, and I think you see similar dynamics today. There was, you know, the Mexican economy has definitely been hurt and as the whole global economy has. Uh, I would say March, April, May, were very, very, very slow. It was, you know, a very, very, very limited business activity. In June, things have started to open up and things are, you know, not at what they were pre-COVID levels, but they're starting to come back. And I think economic activity is increasing quite a bit. 
So we are, you know, cautiously optimistic that, you know, we're through the worst of it. However, it's definitely been hard given that there has not, that there lacks the government intervention and there lacks the government support that has been very material for a lot of U.S. businesses. But the flip side to that is you don't live in an environment where there's a lot of leverage. So you're not seeing, like, well, are you seeing, you know, defaults um, really skyrocket in this, you know, in this environment? Yeah. So there's definitely been fairly sizable increases in non-performing loans uh, and defaults. We are in a unique position partially because we're fully, our, our full portfolio today is all secured and we have very much focused on developing a very robust, very robust, really strong credit underwriting. My perception is that some of the unsecured SME lenders are having slightly more trouble just because you don't have the secured asset piece to it and they're slightly smaller businesses. Uh, so in our case, we've definitely seen increases. We've had to be flexible in terms of offering a portion of our portfolio flexibility in terms of deferment periods, but most of them are back on track. And I think we're quite bullish and we actually think that COVID was in certain ways a blessing in disguise for us because it truly validated our credit underwriting and it validated the resilience that our model has to, you know, to downturns. You know, I, you know, I graduated from college in 2012 at, and, you know, many of the fintech entrepreneurs who have been most successful all started businesses in these bull environments, right. you know, where we've never lived through a recession. And one of the early questions I always got was, is like, how's this model going to, you know, going to function or how's it going to fare in an economic downturn when there's a down cycle? And I think, you know, this is the first time, at least in our case, that we're experiencing that. Uh, and given that we went down the secured lending model initially, I think we feel very fortunate because we're very well positioned to live through this. Right, right. And I'm curious about the, you know, you, you started this, you started what, in 2015, was that right? When you started yeah, Credit Justice? Exactly. So, and back then, I would imagine it would have been pretty hard to get any kind of, uh, you know, American VC on the phone to try and, uh, you know, to try and set up a meeting even. And now it's, it's been so fascinating to me. And we obviously, I know you spoke at our, at our event in Miami last year. And I find it fascinating that everyone's clamoring now for, for Latin American fintech. So yeah. take us through the evolution of the last five years and how that's been for you guys. I can tell you it was not like that in 2008. <laughs> right. It was, you know, it was very, very, very difficult to raise capital in Mexico in 2014 and 2015. So it was, you know, I use the phrase, you know, like a desert. It literally, there was the, the, the quantity of venture capital from institutional grade investors flowing into Mexico was extremely limited. The venture capital scene in Mexico at that point in time was very arcane. It was very backwards. It was not founder friendly. And we made the very, very deliberate choice. We said, you know, I'm American, you know, Alan, is Mexican, but he was educated in the United States. We said, we're going to really focus our energy on trying to convert and convince U.S. investors who have been successful in fintech in the United States and Europe that the same trends and the same just tendencies that have worked in the United States are very, very, the emerging markets are very, very ripe for very similar patterns. So really, we use the success at that point in time of a lot of the technology-enabled lending platforms to convince people that, you know, that Mexico and Latin America was really the next frontier. And 
five years later or four years later, you know, now it's like the flavor of the month, but it wasn't when we started. And I think part of it was a little bit of a domino effect. Our first investor was John Mack, the ex-CEO of Morgan Stanley and Credit Suisse. John was the first independent board member of Lending Club. You know, we convinced John, then we convinced Victory Park Capital, which was a very active credit investor. We were their first, we were Victory Park's first investment uh, in Mexico. Uh, now they've subsequently done uh, a lot. They've had a lot of activity internationally. We were able to convince a group called Broadhaven Capital Partners, which is a, a fairly well-regarded U.S.-based fund. You know, and then from that point, you know, kind of success begets success, where we were able to convince and build credibility. We were able to institutionalize our business early on. Then we did our Series A, which was led by QED and Kazakh, uh, which were early groups to see Latin America for the potential that it had. You know, right. QED had a specific LATAM fund. Then we subsequently did a Series B where uh, Goldman Sachs, the principal strategic investments group, which is focused on basically fintech uh, and 0.72 ventures. We were their first investment in, in Mexico. So in most cases, not all, but in most cases, we were the first investment for almost all of our groups in Mexico. Right. Uh, and we've, I think, gotten a lot of groups comfortable with what we've done. You know, we were a Goldman Sachs on the debt side uh, out of New York. We were their first debt investment in a fintech lender in Mexico. Earlier this year, we brought Credit Suisse to Mexico. We were there for their U.S. securitization team where we were their first uh, investment here. They did a $100 million facility. So I think it's just been a lot of it. It was really, really, really hard. And we just got a little bit of a break. And we, then we started to execute and execute. And from there, you know, I'm not saying it's, it's easy. It's by no right. means easy. But uh, I think credibility that we've built has been helpful in continuing to raise capital for the business. Right. Right. Yeah. You've got to execute. That's the bottom line. You're not going to be able to raise another round if you're not executing. So uh, we're almost out of time, but I want a couple more things I really want to get to. And that is um, firstly, the the Mexican FinTech Act. I, I don't know a lot about it, but I, you know, it was talked about a lot at our event last year. And and you know, it's it, from what I gather, it's, it's, a, it's a new regulatory framework for FinTech. Maybe can you just tell us a little bit about it and how it's affected you guys? Yeah. So it's Another great sign so that Mexico is, is, is forward-looking in that regard. So I think it's exciting to see, you know, I guess the current and the prior government administration wanting, understanding the, the, the benefits. There's 51 banks in Mexico. There's, I don't have the exact latest figure, but there's what, seven, eight, 9,000 banks in the United States. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why creating more competition in Mexico really is beneficial and can move the needle for financial inclusion in a positive way. So the government is motivated to do things that can support more innovation and can support more uh, activity in the market. The fintech law is mostly geared towards payments, platforms, and kind of more the peer-to-peer side of things. In our case, it hasn't directly affected our business that much because we're not directly in either of those two areas, Uh, but it was mostly geared towards like digital wallets and where you have money, basically payments and cash flow coming in and out and being exchanged with non-bank lenders. So the short answer is for Credit Justo, the FinTech law has not changed much for our business at all, but for many FinTech companies that are not focused directly on lending and are more in payments, digital wallets, et cetera, it's a very, very, very critical piece of legislation that sets very clear guidelines and rules for how they can operate. We're regulated by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, as well as by the Banking Commission, as well as by the tax authorities. And the main issues that 
lenders like ours are focused with is AML issues. So anti-money laundering is a very, very critical topic in any emerging market, particularly Mexico. And data privacy is a very important priority for the Mexican government. So those are, the, I would say, the two things that probably influence or impact us most. But for many fintechs who are in these other categories that I mentioned, the fintech law is a very important piece that they have to track very carefully and dictates a lot of things that they can and cannot do. Right, right. Okay, so you know, most of the listeners, or you know, over half listeners of this podcast are American. And what, what do you think that Americans um, still misunderstand uh, about, about Mexico today, particularly from a fintech perspective? I think that there's, I think that there's a little bit of an assumption that plug and play works in Mexico in the sense, you know, take a model that worked in the United States or Europe you know, arrive with my MBA in Mexico and, you know, I, I, you know, and go for it. I'm, I'm kidding, but it's, I think we, we like to use the word, you, you really have to tropicalize business models to the local context mm-hmm. and, you know, everything from starting a business and the process that is involved in incorporating an, you know, in, incorporating an entity, these things have become faster, but there's still significantly more friction in terms of, building a business and getting things going. In our mind, it creates a protective moat because once you have a business that is going, the time that it would take to replicate something is much longer. But I would say my main comment to answer your question is just the assumption that what works in the United States will equally or similarly work in Mexico or the region. I think what you'll probably find is there are more things that are different than similar. So. Mm-hmm you'll probably see that there are elements that will work, but there are also a lot of elements that are just not applicable for many factors. So I think when considering starting a business in Latin America, or in this case in Mexico, you really should do the analysis of, okay, what is similar, but more importantly, what is different and how are we going to address the things that are different? Last question. Uh, I know you've talked about your credit card product, but maybe take us through, you know, what, what, where would you like to see Credit Justo going you know, down the road a couple of years? So, you know, we, you know, we're launching our credit card product and I think, you know, our vision, I think my view is monoline lenders, monoline direct lenders are kind of, are of the past, if you will. So I think fintech platforms need to quickly evolve to become truly multi-product service models that offer lending products as well as financial planning tools, as well as a whole array of other services. And I think that's very much where we're going. We want to dominate SME and middle market segment, and we want to be the go-to financing and financial services platform for these borrowers. And that means, and, and that's really where the equity value is. The equity value is not having a, you know, a high interest margin, and it's just, and just an interesting portfolio. Growth is important, but to really own these borrowers, which is I think something that we're well on our way to doing, you need to offer them lending products, but also non-lending products. Mm-hmm. And you need to create an offering that is really, really sticky. So that's where we're going. We're, you know, I think we're, we're the best positioned, given our capital base, given our track record, given our credit performance, to uh, really become that solution. And I think that that's gonna become a really unique, valuable asset uh, for, you know, you know, you know, moving into the future. Okay, David, we'll um, have to leave it there. Good luck. Thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk with you and uh, look forward to hopefully uh, meeting again in person. Yes, indeed. Okay. See you. Take care. 
You know, I think David lays out the case quite succinctly there why there is so much interest in Latin America from US investors, from European investors, and actually really global investors. And, you know, you'll see the, the, the capital pouring in, but you still have to execute. And that's, uh, and that's really what I think David and the team at Credo Justo uh, have de- are developing a track record for doing that. You know, the pandemic is really going to be a make or break for fintechs globally. And it's going to be one of those things where you once you if you've survived the pandemic and you You've got your loan book in place and you can see what the impact was and sounds like what they're doing at Credo Justo. You know, he's got the secured lending, so that's obviously a lot. He's in a much better position than the unsecured guys, as he said. But uh, surviving the pandemic, I think, is only going to increase the, the amount of interest that, um, that investors have in Latin America for, with, for companies like David to come through really well. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Today's episode was sponsored by Lendit Fintech Latam. The region's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking is going virtual. It's happening online on December 8th and 9th. Pandemic or not, LATAM is still the hottest region for fintech in the world, and Lendit Fintech Latam features all the leading players in the region. So join the LATAM fintech community online this year, where you'll meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. Lendit Fintech, lending and banking connected. Sign up today at lendit.com slash LATAM.